Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? So my name, if you don't know me, my name is Kevin Eaton. I am one of the elders here. Uh, and I have the wonderful opportunity to fight my own nerves and uh, bring the message for you this morning. So when Matt asked me, actually, he didn't ask me. He asked either Tom or I. He was like, so who wants to preach? And we were both kind of like, mm. Not it? Oh, I was late. So uh, I, I, got, I got called. Uh, I got pulled from the dugout. Uh, Matt, Matt tapped the, the righty and said, all right, put him in. So uh, this morning, honestly, we're starting in the Psalms. It's going to be uh, a, a great break from our series. So we've been, you know, we, we've talked through the Bible. We've started at the beginning, ended all the way at the end. So we, cut, we hit every major milestone in the Bible to give a great overview then we went into Jude, okay, and that was another in-depth, really hard, difficult study. Uh, now we're going to take a break before our next series, and we're going to look at some of the Psalms. So uh, when I was thinking of the Psalms, I was like, ah, Psalm 100, and I said it kind of jokingly, and then I was like, no, really, that's one of the, the, the top two, right? So you got Psalm 23, and you got Psalm 100. So if you would, if you don't, if it's not popping to your head immediately, if you would, stand with me. If you have your Bible, uh, open it up to Psalm 100, and we're going to read God's Word together. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. It says in verse 1, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for this time that we have together as believers to gather in your house and study this. Father, I pray that you give me the words to speak, the congregation, the ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, in today's times, social media is uh, one of those big things you hear a lot about, right? It's a uh, it's something that is a necessary evil, I guess, if you're a famous person now, now, nowadays. Used to, all you had to worry about was the nightly news, but now you have to worry about what you say on Twitter, what you say on Facebook, what you say on whatever InstaFace or whatever all these other things are, right? So, you know, every famous person, every company, and, and my company, I work for a large company, uh, and, and they have a social media policy. I get it in writing, like this is what you can say, this is what you can't. Or if you're a politician and you're running for office, you also know what you say has an effect on what people think of you, right? So what these people do, they hire these spin doctors, right? Not the band from the 90s, they were terrible, like a PR firm, okay? They... they they hire these PR firms because no matter who you are, bad press can absolutely ruin your reputation. And that's why these huge PR firms exist. They take uh, information, no matter what it is, and then they put a pos positive spin on it. You hear in the news all the time, if you watch Fox News or MSNBC or XYZ, whatever it is, they always, you hear the other opposing view saying, oh, well, they spun that story, right? So they're putting a positive spin on it. You know, they target where, where people are 
uh, and where people get their information to ensure that their client has the best possible image. So politicians, as we know, we're in an election season, and it can be mind-numbing and frustrating and, and ridiculous, but, you know, politicians know that bad press can ruin their reputation and result in defeat in the polls. But sadly, most politicians, and this is very broad, I'm not speaking on everyone, but most poli politicians don't focus on truthful, honest, upright behavior, but rather how to convey their image. So they want to be seen as truthful and upright, even if they aren't. Uh, they want good press, but that good press is not always stemming from good character. And that's where I want to tie this in to Psalm 100 today. So from day one, Satan has been on a campaign to smear God's image. Uh, he's been on a campaign to smear his goodness so that people will not follow him. Uh, when he tempted Eve in the garden, his main ploy, his main objective was to get Eve to doubt that God intended good for her by forbidding Adam from eating the fruit. So if you remember, we talked in Genesis, this is one of the first things we covered. In Genesis 3-5 it says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And this is the serpent saying this to Eve, right? So he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the lie was, the serpent telling Eve, the lie was, God is trying to keep you from a good thing. He's telling her, no, it's okay, it's okay, you can eat this, it's fine. He just doesn't want you to be like him. And the extension of the, that lie, so if you take that one step further in your thought process, the extension of the lie that he told Eve is God is not really good. He's, he's spinning it. He's spinning what God told Adam, and he's turning it around. And the devil has used this falsehood in varying forms to keep people from following the Lord. Uh, Satan promotes the lie. If you follow God, you'll have to stop doing the things you enjoy and start doing the things you hate, right? So if you are new to church or if you're new to Christianity, you think, man, I'm having fun, but I got to give all that up, right? It's a lie. It's, it's a spin. You're, you're thinking to yourself, well, now I'm eating ice cream and for dessert, and why would I want to eat spinach, right? Well, it's, it's, you may be thinking, you know, it's not, it's not that fun to be a Christian. But, you know, unfortunately, many Christians have played into that lie and that deception. So we partly can be to blame for that. Uh, so outwardly, we are conveying being a Christian may be glum or grim or just a boring way of life. So I grew up in... Athens, Tennessee, I went to First Baptist Church, Athens. Uh, it was a very, very large church. Uh, at the height when I was going there, there were between 1,000 and 1,500 every Sunday, 250 in the youth group. It was crazy, crazy big, right? Uh, then I moved down to Florida uh, and started kind of church hopping as I was going to Florida Baptist Theological College, which is what it was called back then. Now it's Baptist College of Florida, which uh, Pastor Matt also attended, so... What does that say? I don't know. Anyway. But, uh, you know, in church hopping, uh, trying to find a church home outside of where I grew up, I noticed a lot of things. I noticed, you know, you go into one church and it seems very joyous. People are happy to see you. People greet you at the door. They smile. They seem enthusiastic during worship. 
like people are actually singing, they're smiling, there's like a, a conveyance of joy in the sanctuary. And then there's the other side where you walk in and it's more like attending a wake than a celebra- celebratory church service. So you, you walk in, somebody may greet you, but it's not with a smile like, hey brother, how you doing? Nice to meet you. I'm like, okay, nice to meet you too. I hope everything's okay. It's creepy. And then you come in, you sit down, you turn around, you look, and it's just like straight faces, right? You, that people may say hi, then they sing, and it's like amazing. Like, really, guys? It's amazing grace. Come on, let's sing, right? So what does that convey? What does that, what does that tell people about who we are saying is our, our Lord and our Savior? Now, like I said, that when they sing, there, there, may, there may be no smiles, uh, no smiles and, and no joy at all. But I'm not endorsing the, the craziness, right, or lack of order in worship. But what I'm trying to say is our homes, our individual lives as Christians should reflect the joy and gladness in the Lord. If not, our good God gets bad press from those professing to be his people. Now, I'm going to come back to this verse. It's, it's, it's 1 Peter 2.9. I'm going to hit uh, 9 and 10 a couple times in this sermon. But it says that God has made us to be people for his own possession. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you who are, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So let that soak in just for a minute. I mean, we are to proclaim that the Lord is good. And we should do so because we were chosen. We were called out. We were set apart. We were taken from darkness. We were dead in our sins. Can a dead person rise on his own? No. We were taken from this death into light, into life. If that's not a reason to praise God, I I don't know what is, right? I mean, we were taken from the trespasses of our sin into a new life in Christ, and it is amazing. John Piper, which I'm sure all of you have heard of, a very famous pastor, theologian, super genius, smart guy, uh, he often says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What does that mean? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It means that when we are satisfied in in God, we praise him. There's a joy that is found. And so is our job as believers to give give good good press to God, not by spinning or, or bending the truth or putting a positive spin on it, but conveying by our demeanor and our words how great he truly is. And that's the message of Psalm 100. Because the Lord is good, we who belong to him should be people of joy, submission, and praise. Now, Psalm 100 is the only psalm with the title, A Psalm of Giving Thanks. The Hebrew word for giving thanks, thanksgiving, literally means confession. Okay, In this case, it means to confess God's character 
and his words. So you're confessing to God who God is. It's, it's literally praise and thanksgiving. You're telling God, you are awesome. You are amazing. There are several approaches that I found uh, in my study uh, to outlining this psalm. Uh, some point out that there are two verses of exhortation, followed by verse 3, which is explanation. Okay? Then the cycle is repeated. Verse 4 is exhortation. Verse 5 is explanation. Uh, John Piper, again, on his uh, website, uh, labels verses 1 and 2, 1, 2, and 4 as exaltation, with verses 3 and 5 as education. Another way of looking at it is to note that there are four verses of exhortation followed by one verse giving the reason for the exhortations. And that's the one we're going to go with this morning. There are seven commands in this verse. So these are commands. These are things that, that you are told to do through this song, this song. It says in verse 1, serve. Verse 2, come before him. Know, enter, give thanks, bless. And then verse 5 gives us the reason behind the commands. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at the reason first, and then we're going to look at the commands. So in verse 5, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. This is the reason why. It says in verse 5, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So the Lord is good. It is easy to say that, right? Most of the time in church, when you say, the Lord is good, people go, amen, right? The Lord is good. It's super easy to say that, but do you really believe it? That's the question. We all say it, the Lord is good, amen and amen, but do you believe it? Some of you have gone through very difficult times and trials. Some of you may be going through difficult times right now. The hard question is, do you believe that God is good and that is using these trials to work together for your good so that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And if that sounds familiar, it comes from Romans 8, 28 and 29, where it says, And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the first, firstborn among many brothers. What, what he's saying there in Romans is that we were called and that we are being conformed. So even through these trials, these tribulations, these hard times, God is using those to transform us for his good. The psalmist wrote... Uh, in Psalm 119.67, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The next verse, 68, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. A few verses later, in 71, it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So even in our afflictions, especially in our afflictions, we must submit to God and affirm his goodness by faith. So this is where it takes faith. If you're in a rough time, if you're in a rough season, if things aren't going right, that is the optimum time to praise God because you know he is working in your life for good. These things may hurt. We were never promised an easy life. I don't care what prosperity gospel has told you, what those guys on TV have said. We were never promised something easy. 
we were promised salvation through Christ. And that may be hard, right? But Satan knows that if he can get you to doubt God's goodness, you won't trust him. And if you don't trust him, you won't obey him. So why trust and obey a mean God is trying to make you miserable? That's the lie Satan tries to tell. And in this life, we have example uh, of our earthly dads. So not all of us had great dads. That's the truth. Some of us had amazing dads, and I'm jealous because not all of us had, had great dads. Uh, maybe your dad claimed to be a Christian, but he was hard to be around, right? He'd come from home from work, super grumpy, uh, and be mad at life. Maybe he didn't like his job. Maybe, you know, something's going on. He was just angry. Maybe he'd even take it out on you or your mom. As you grew up, you may have, have assumed that the Heavenly Father must be sort of like that, mean, grumpy, barking commands, and not wanting to enjoy you to enjoy life. But I want to say that that's not the case, and it is imperative that you don't draw your, your image and knowledge of the Heavenly Father from your earthly father. It is imperative that you derive your understanding of God from the Bible, from the Scriptures. What does it say? At the root of who God, God is, you must affirm that He is good. The Bible attests to God's goodness in His creation in Genesis, in His salvation and deliverance of His people in Exodus, in His provision for His people in Nehemiah, and in His Word, which He instructs us how to live so as to be blessed in Psalms and Deuteronomy, and even in our afflictions. But in this psalm, he mentions two facets of God's goodness, which frequently occur together in the psalms, his loving kindness and his faithfulness. So God's loving kindness is everlasting. And what do I mean by loving kindness? So uh, this is the Hebrew word hesed, uh, which... Uh, as, as Matt will say, if he took Dr. Lee, he knows this word was probably pounded in his head in Old Testament 101, 102. It was hesed, okay? Uh, Dr. Lee uh, was one of my professors at Florida Baptist Theological College, and he, he first introduced me to this word. And what I found extremely interesting, I was going back through uh, some of my old notes, and it comes from their word for stork, which is interesting. You think stork, huh, okay. Well, the Hebrews noticed how storks have an uncommon love for and protection of their young. They build their nests securely, extremely high up in the trees. And in Psalm 104.17, it actually shows a picture of this. It says, in them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. That's Psalm 104.17. So they said, the Hebrews said, God's love for his own is like that. It's exactly like that. He nurtures, nurtures us and protects us from all of our enemies. He cares for us and feeds us. His love does not depend on us at all, but on his eternal nature, which is good. And it is everlasting. God's faithfulness is also everlasting. God is not fickle. He is not moody, uh, where one day he acts one way towards us and the next day he's different. No, he's, he's steadfast and he is true. 
He is true to his eternal attributes. He is faithful to his covenant promises, and he is true to all his revealed purposes. He doesn't change. He is steadfast. He is rock solid. The Bible contains the record of his faithfulness to his people in the past. It also shows how he will be true to the promises to glorify his people in the future. And so we can rely on his faithfulness to us in the present. No matter what kind of trial we're going through, we can rely on God to fulfill his promises and to remain good. As Psalm 119, 75 and 76 speaks to specifically, it says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. So we must affirm at all times, in all situations, Lord, you are good to me. Your loving kindness and your faithfulness are always with me. You will never leave me or forsake me. We have to affirm that in our own lives. Otherwise, we will be that grim, moderately solemn Christian. Okay? The first four verses of Psalm 100 show how the truth of God's goodness should affect us. If we belong to God, we should be people of joy, submission, and praise. So, first part of that, Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2, if we belong to God, we should be people of joy. Okay? It says in verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So is that your image of a Christian life? That's, that's the, the question here. Is that your image of a Christian life? There's no allowance there for grumpiness, is there? Nope. There's nothing here about snapping at your wife or kids. No room here for complaining about your tough times. Uh, the psalmist is telling us four big things, right? He's telling us joy in the Lord should be exuberant. It should be like out loud, amazing. So your joy in the Lord should be external, says, make a joyful noise. So this, this refers to spontaneous shout of victory. So imagine this. Imagine this. So you are living way back when. You've got a king. Uh, all of the young men have gone out to fight a battle. Uh, and then a rider comes back into the city. And you hear, victory. What do, you, what do you do? Do you go, okay, that's cool. No, you run out into the streets. You shout. You're like, whoa, victory, we won. King's coming back, awesome, enemies defeated, walls are still standing, I got food to eat, I'm excited. That's what we're talking about. It is a shout of victory, a shout of praise. It is to be exuberant, to be out loud. And that's how our joy in the Lord should be. It should overflow at times. The Bible doesn't suggest that it should be that, that way always, of course. I mean, we all go through high points and low points. Uh, we are to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that reap. Uh, that come weep that come, with those that weep. That's out of Romans. The two shortest verses in the New Testament, if you're reading the ESV, are rejoice always. Okay, that's in First Thessalonians five sixteen. Rejoice always. The next shortest verse, and the same two words in the ESV, is John eleven thirty five. Says Jesus wept. So there's a balance. There is a balance to the Christian life. Rejoice always, and yet our Savior 
cried. But if God has worked a victory in your life, if you are transformed, shout it out. Shout it out. If he has answered your prayer, shout for joy. But you're, you may be thinking, well, it's just not my personality. I'm, I'm rather calm. I'm, I'm very neat. I'm a reserved person, you know. But notice, but notice this. Exuberant joy in the Lord is a command for everyone. It is not for the, you know, it, it, you don't have an exclusion because it makes you uncomfortable. Which I can attest to. I'm extremely uncomfortable speaking in front of people. But it's not an exemption. It's not an exemption. Uh, the psalmist does not say, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all of you who have exuberant personalities. That's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, everyone. There's a missionary focus to this verse as well. I mean, for all the earth to shout joyfully to the Lord, they must first know who he is. They have to know who God is for them to know to shout. For all the earth to shout joyfully to the Lord, they must know who he is. And one way that they should know that he's worth shouting about is to see the joyful Christians. So, question again, are you giving God bad press or good press to the non-Christians in the world around you that witness your life? So, the one sports analogy I was able to pull in to this sermon, a sports story. So, uh, I know there are a few Titans fans. I'm looking at a couple right there. Uh, there's another one. Clint stands up here. I've been to a few Titans games, okay? Um, I've been to some with, with one of my friends. I've been to other, others with associates from my, my, wife's, uh, my wife's doctor's office. And it was interesting to see how people you don't normally interact with change at a football game, right? So you'll notice this normally reserved professional that I went to this game with who shall remain unnamed. Uh, he was very quiet, you know, most of the time. Uh, I mean, he's, he's talkative enough. He's a professional. He knows how to talk business. But uh, y we were sitting there, and then there was a bad call. And all of a sudden, he stands up, and he's shaking his fist. He's like, Ref! blah, 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 bad words, <laughs> threatening voice. And then he sits back down. And I'm like, well, that was weird. <laughs> I mean, it was just a bad call, but I got it. Not two minutes later, there's an interception, run back for a touchdown. He's out of his seat, hugging people he doesn't know, just, woo, yeah, we're, we got it. And I was like, okay, that was a big contrast. You were threatening his life a minute ago, and now you're screaming for joy. But that, that is football, right? So it, it, it amazed me, though, that a professional would leap spontaneously to his feet and scream at the top of his lungs and, and even hug those people that he didn't know. But I've never seen, obviously, him or anybody else uh, do that in church. Like, just, whoa, yes, mm, you know? I mean, there have been times in some Pentecostal churches I'm not going to talk about that's gotten a little weird. But, you know, normally you don't, you don't see people just get that excited. I mean, we get so excited about football about baseball, soccer, whatever your sport is, you get stoked, right? Your team's winning. You're just like, mm, yeah, kicking their butts. But in church, you just don't, 
You don't see that, that fire. We need to have that fire. We need to have that fire. We need to have that joy. So my question to you is, why do we get so excited about our games and not about our God? And that's a tough question. And that leads me to my next point. Joy in the Lord should permeate our service for him. So it says, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve. Seems like a command, right? We're always asking for volunteers. Serve the Lord with gladness. There are two parts to this command. Serve the Lord and do it with gladness. So first question is, do you serve the Lord? Yes or no? Second question, do you do it with gladness for all that he has done for you? So if you are serving, are you doing it gladly? If you're not serving, why not? It's an easy, easy thing. So people, even Christians, serve sports. They serve their recreation. They serve their video games, their movies, their music, their business, their possessions, the stock market, and, and on and on and on and on. All those things you do, you're, you're serving those things. You're serving those interests. You're serving what you want to get accomplished through those things. The Lord threatened Israel with some pretty frightening consequences if they did not serve him gladly. And serve him gladly is, is underlined in my notes here. It's in uh, Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. It says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. And as Bob Dylan says, you got to serve somebody, right? So it's, they, were, they, were, they were threatened because they were not serving the Lord gladly. They were serving the Lord begrudgingly. In the Old Testament, God sent his enemies against them to conquer them. Now, something near and dear to my heart, number four, joy in the Lord should be expressed in singing. And as you see, I play the bass up here every Sunday. I'm not attached to it. If anybody else wants to, to be a member of the praise team, come and talk to me, and I can get you up here. We are always looking for new enthusiastic servers, but we are to come into the house, come to God uh, in his presence with singing. Now, don't miss the first part of this command, that in, in coming to sing, you are coming into his presence. So we gather in his presence. If our singing is lackluster, my hunch is we've forgotten that we're offering it to him. So in those churches where you see people very monotone, very straight-faced, standing slightly hunched, singing, they've forgotten who they're singing to. You're not singing just to sing. You're singing to God. You're singing to the one that has had a plan from the very beginning to redeem his people. Does the way that we sing as a church give our good God good press or bad press? That's the question. So come into his presence with joyful singing. We who belong to God should be part of joy, should be people of joy. The people who belong to God should also be people of submission. Now this is 
where it gets a little uncomfortable. Psalm 100, verse 3, you won't find the word submission in this verse, but it's written all over it. It's in between the lines. So it says, know that the Lord, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Why does the psalmist insert this verse in a psalm dealing with joy and thanksgiving? What does the fact that the Lord is God and that he made us and that we are his people and his sheep have to do with thanksgiving? Well, it has a ton to do with it, right? So in verse 3, it describes a relationship of submission to God and submission is directly related to thanks, uh, uh, thankfulness. So let me say it again. Submission is directly related to thankfulness. If you're grumbling or griping about your circumstances, you're not subject to God's sovereign hand in your life. You're, you're implying that, that you could do a better job than God at running your own life. That's what you're implying. You know, you're, you're implying that if he'd just give you, give you the chance, you could run your life better. It's not until you willingly submit to God as God that you can say, thank you, Lord, that you are good and that you will work this trial together for my, my good. Verse 3 gives us a few reasons why we should submit to the Lord. Well, one, we should submit to the Lord because he's God. Uh, the psalmist says, know that the Lord, he is God, exclamation point. That means you, you are not God, exclamation point. So God is God, you are not. It's pretty simple. Uh, even when we don't understand why something is happening to us, you need to acknowledge that, that Lord, you're the only true and living God, and I submit to you, even when things are going terrible. We should also submit to the Lord because he is our creator. It's he who made us and we are his. The clear implication is that since God made us, we must bow before him. So evolution has gained this huge following foothold in our society. And it's not because there's, there's a huge mound of scientific evidence for it. It's a theory and there's a lot of holes. It's like Swiss cheese. But the reason it's gained such a huge foothold is because it eliminates the need for a proud man to submit to God. And that is my, my theory on why that is so prevalent in today's society. If you can explain away creation through some very questionable science, you no longer have to submit to a God that is greater than yourself. And that is a scary place to be as a society. But... If you hold that God created us, if you hold that we are created out of the image of our Father, then you have to submit to him. It is a given. We should also submit to the Lord because he is our Redeemer. We are his people. Israel uh, once was not, was not God's people, but he chose them and called them to follow him through Abraham. He redeemed them from the bondage in Egypt. And then we in the church, once we're not his people either, but he chose us. He chose us and called us to follow him, redeeming us from our bondage to sin. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, 
We read verse 9 earlier. I'm going to pull in verse 10 now. It says, But you are a chosen race. We are chosen. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people that, we, that he possesses, that you may proclaim the excellencies, how great he is, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because, because he is our redeemer and we are his people, we must submit to him. We should also submit to the Lord because he is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. We are the sheep of his pasture. This reminds us, I'm sure, all of Psalm 23, right? The, the other, the most famous psalm of them all. I think this one would probably be number two. But it reminds us of Psalm 23 and of John 10, where Jesus claims one to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. His sheep know his voice and follow him as he leads them to an abundant pasture. So if, if Christ is our shepherd, the church is his sheep. Because God is good, full of loving kindness and faithfulness, we should be people of joy. Because he is good, as only the one true God can be, as our creator, as our redeemer, and as our shepherd, we should submit to him. If we belong to God, we should be people of praise. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That's verse 4. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Dozens of times in the Bible we are commanded to praise the Lord, which implies that we are to do it whether we feel like it or not. So, if we never feel like praising the Lord, something, something is seriously wrong with your Christian life. If you never feel like just breaking out in song in the middle of traffic because you hear an amazing song of praise on the radio and you just got to sing along and no matter who's looking at you from either car windows and you just don't care, you know, there, there are times like that in your life where you're just like, God, thank you, thank you, and thank you again. Praise your name. If, if that never happens in your life, you've got to consider the fact that there may be something wrong and you need to examine that. Find that, that problem. Where, where is the rift between you and the good God that created you. So while we should praise God and thank God in our private devotion, uh, this verse focuses on, on worshiping him corporately. Uh, his gates and his courts uh, refers to the tabernacle or the temple where God's people came together to worship. To enter those gates with thanksgiving and praise implies that you are preparing your heart beforehand and coming with deliberate purpose of offering to praise God. I encourage you to take a few minutes on, on Saturday night before you even, even come in here. Take, take some time on Saturday night and prepare your hearts for Saturday, uh, Sunday morning. So this isn't hard to do before you go to bed. Just thank God that you are able to go to bed and, 
and pray for the service the next morning. Pray for this church. Uh, lift this church up. Pray that there will be joy and thanksgiving among the congregation. Pray that you are going to be a, a city on a hill, a lighthouse for this entire community, that they can see through our joy who Christ is. Pray for the worship time, that it will honor the Lord. Then on Sunday morning, get up early enough to spend some time before the Lord reading His Word if you can. And then praying for your heart and the hearts of others to be right before Him. If you're feeling down on Sunday morning, come anyway. I mean, there have been many times where I've been incredibly tired, just got back from a flight from California for work, and honestly, didn't feel like coming in. But I tell you what, you will be blessed if you do. It is energizing to be in the house of the Lord. It is energizing to be around people that show the joy of the Lord. It is, it is an amazing thing. So even if you don't feel like it, come on in anyway. The Lord will use that for your good, for your, for your betterment. Our praise should focus on what God has done and on who He is. We give thanks for what He has done, especially that He has saved us from our sins through the blood of His own dear Son. Blessing God's name means to praise Him for who He is as revealed in His Word and through His Son. He has blessed us with a great gift of salvation, and we should return that by praising Him. So, a couple questions to wrap things up. Does your life give God good press or bad press? That's the overarching question for today. If you're doubting His goodness and grumbling about your own trials, you're giving him bad press. Those around you who don't know God will think, well, he says his life has changed, but all I hear is complaining. So if your life has changed, are you, are you a constant complainer? If your life is changed, what is there really to complain about? I know times are hard, life is tough, but there should be one overarching joy in your life, and that is the salvation that, that, that God has given you through his son, Jesus It can be difficult to praise God through the difficult times, but, but it is life-changing for both you and for those that witness it. So in my time at the journey, I have seen men uh, both in Lebanon and here that have gone through cancer. They have lost children and loved ones. They've lost wealth, but have not lost their praise. And it is an amazing thing to see when a man can lose his child, and then still praise the Lord. It is an amazing thing, an amazing thing to witness. You know, they have always said, I, know, I don't know what God is doing, but I know He is God, and He works all things out for good. They have praised God even in the midst of the greatest storms in their life, and that is giving their good God great press. And I can remember every single one of those instances I've witnessed. So remember, in the good times and in the bad, praise God because He is God and He deserves all our praise. Let's pray. Father God, You are good. You are great. You are amazing. And 
as undeserving as we are, you sent your son, Jesus, to live that perfect life that we could not, to be trialed and beaten and slain for the forgiveness of our sins. Even though we don't deserve it, Lord, we praise you for it. We thank you for it, and we thank you for this day. If there is anyone in this congregation that doesn't know you, I pray that you are knocking on their heart's door today. Father, as we get ready to sing this last song of praise, I pray that you would just fill our hearts with the joy and with the, the, the overwhelming urge to praise your name this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.